0: hey podcast listeners ria here just wanted to let you know that i'm accepting applications for the last session of the fundraising accelerator if you want to raise more money from major donors and high net worth individuals this is the place for you the session will run from october to november 2021 special pricing is available for students who enroll before july 31st check it out at ria Welcome to Nonprofit Lowdown. I'm your host, Rhea Wong. Hey podcast listeners, it's Ria Wong with you once again with Nonprofit Lowdown. I am so excited because we are going to nerd out today. We are talking with my friend, Dwayne Rohrbacher, who is the Director of Development at UC Irvine, as well as the founder and CEO of Impact Systems Builders, which is a business-to-business nonprofit that provides custom solutions to help nonprofits scale and sustain. And you know, here at Nonprofit Lowdown, we are all about sustainability and all about that money. So we are talking today about systematizing your fundraising. So welcome, Dwayne.
1: Thank you, Raya. It's really nice to be here.
0: All right, Dwayne, let's just jump right into it. Tell me a little bit about yourself and your career and um, nonprofit up to this point.
1: Yeah, so my background is the Ohio State University, where I went to undergrad. And right before this, we were talking about 2008. That's where I was in 2008 on this campus. I went to graduate school at Penn State and earned a law degree and a PhD in education administration, started my career in student affairs, and then quickly kind of transitioned to a student affairs alumni relations role. Then from there, I went from alumni relations to development, and now I'm solely in the major gift principal gift space. So it's been a little bit of a journey. And a few years ago, I decided to start a business to business nonprofit called Impact Systems Builders because as I started networking, I live in Orange County, California. I found that a lot of nonprofits were struggling with systems. They didn't know what CRMs to use, how to do communications in a way that they could track things. They didn't know how to track their prospects. It was just a lot of Excel sheets without a lot of automation. So I've started to dig into the best ways to efficiently scale an organization with essentially one person. So a lot of nonprofits are obviously understaffed. So it's really important to have efficient systems in place. So one person can do all the things that they need to do. They can be the events person and the annual giving person and the major gifts person and write grants on the side. So it's something I'm really passionate about. and am really excited to talk about.
0: All right, Joanna, we're going to dig into the systems, but I just want to make a little pit stop before we talk about that, because major gifts is what I love near and dear to my heart. You were hired by UC Irvine to start a major gift program. Can you talk a little bit about how you even got started with that?
1: Yeah. So the UC Irvine started the College of Health Sciences in 2017. And as part of that, they were building three new schools. So I was brought in to kind of start a school from scratch. Essentially, it was a program, had very minimal fundraising in the past, minimal prospect list. I actually came into the university with one person in my portfolio, just one. And It was a very long time donor and that person has since given a six figure gift, but it was a one person portfolio. And so to start, it was really kind of getting on the ground and making those connections. I like to use a LinkedIn analogy. So all of the people within the program are the first connections who are the second connections that we need to connect with, who are the third connections we need to connect with. So it was really almost interviewing people on the ground, mostly faculty because it is university. And trying to go across campus and see who else might be interested in this new burgeoning program. So it was really kind of starting an alumni chapter was really important to get people excited, creating almost a donor journey, but a pre-donor journey. So a welcome back campaign is what I called it. So I did this entire drip campaign over the course of a few months saying, you haven't heard from us in forever, potentially, or a long time. So I'd love to get to know you and things like that. So I had a lot of, not even qualification calls, I would call them identification calls, really trying to get a sense with people of, are you interested? What do you know about us? How's your journey been? And a lot of those identification calls, one of the things that I would ask people who weren't interested in directly giving is if they could introduce me to somebody that they think might be interested. So that was really critical in sort of building and growing the program as fast as possible. But I will say it was not fast. Speed is not something that you can really rely on in the major gifts world, especially in a new program, because as we all know, a lot of major gifts take a really long time. Sometimes a $20,000 gift can take a year and sometimes a million dollar gift can take a day. So there's a lot of sort of luck in things like that. But if you're starting a pipeline development program, which is essentially what I did, you really have to start getting people in. What's their affinity? How are they going to start giving? And there's already a robust annual giving program at the university but we wanted to create an annual giving program within the unit and create like a club, essentially. Uh, So we created a giving club to, again, create affinity and things like that. And then from there, you just kind of have to scale to major gifts. And sometimes major gifts look a lot different. So a major gift is defined at my university as $25,000 and higher. For me, a major gift can be $10,000. And that's just because if you don't have the prospect pool, you can't expect suddenly to start getting $25,000 gifts left and right. So it's been almost two years and we are this year going to hit our largest number of donors secured, largest dollars secured and highest pledge payment rate ever. So it's been really exciting.
0: So I want to lift up a couple of things here because I think you're spinning some value bombs here. So first is using LinkedIn. I say LinkedIn is the single most underrated platform out there. And so it's just a lot of, researching, prospecting, and so forth. And then the other piece I really want to lift up here is that it just means talking to a lot of people and picking up the phone and getting a lot of rejection. And I think some of the time, the mistake that I see fundraisers make is they get caught in this snare of procrastinate learning where it's just more research, more research. Whereas just picking up the phone could actually be the best course of action.
1: Yeah. I think if somebody answers your call, they're not going to reject you. That's what I've learned. So the people who don't answer the call are the people that rejected you. And sure, you can call them a few times. And if they don't answer, then they move off your list and maybe they go into some sort of drip campaign that they get in every once in a while. Or the people who unsubscribe, they're gone. But if somebody picks up the phone, they're not rejecting you. They might say no, but they're not saying never. When I hear no, all I really hear is not right now. And that could be for a variety of reasons you have to figure out why not right now and that's why i think relying on an annual gift program as a really big pipeline builder for a major gifts program is really important if you have a wealth capacity software where you're trying to figure out what the wealth rating is from people everyone knows especially if you live in a major metropolitan area those are not very accurate just because you own a home worth a million dollars doesn't mean you didn't buy the home for a hundred thousand dollars 25 years ago And somebody who owns a $100,000 home doesn't necessarily have the capacity that the wealth rating system says that they do. So I think it's trying to figure out if they're not a major gift prospect, can they be an annual giving prospect? Why do they want to give if they want to give? And if they pick up the phone, they're not saying never. They're just saying no, not right now. And I think those two elements are really important to just get people going. Excel is your friend, track people. And we'll talk about that
0: soon, I'm sure. Yeah, the other piece that I just want to mention for folks is Knowing when to cut your losses. I feel so often we hope as a strategy, and it's like, if I call this person just one more time, <laughs> then they'll donate money. It's like, people are grown ups; they make their decisions, and they'll let you know if they want to be engaged or not.
1: Yeah, my strategy for cold people, so people that have either 10 years ago or more interest in the organization. So a cold person is either somebody who gave a very long time ago or somebody who's never given and never really attended an event. I do email, introduction, call almost immediately. And I know a lot of people do that the other direction and we can talk about why I do that. So email, call, email, wait, email, gone. And that's really sort of a three strikes your out strategy. And the reason that I do an email first is because if somebody picks up the phone and is willing to talk to you, how many times have we heard somebody say, yeah, I have a couple of minutes to talk. Because you very politely say, hi, my name is Dwayne from UCI. Do you have a couple of minutes to talk? People say yes, often. They really only have a couple of minutes to talk and you don't want to just talk to them for a couple of minutes. So my strategy isn't to say, do you have a couple of minutes to talk right now? It's I'm going to email you times that we can schedule to talk later. But if you have a calendar in front of you, I'd love to get on your calendar for a future time. And that gives you a 15 minute conversation or a 20 minute conversation or a 30 minute conversation instead of a three minute conversation. Because you can have 10 three minute conversations. Where do they go? I mean, what can you learn in three minutes other than the person graduated in 1982 and they're going on vacation next week? I really try to use the call to schedule another call instead of trying to use the call to get a ton of information right away. Because the rule of reciprocity people are very polite and will say that they have a couple of minutes if they're willing to pick up the phone. And we kind of get stuck in a trap where we just say, okay, you only have five minutes. I have to. Talk for five minutes and then I'm done. And then who knows if you're going to respond to me later.
0: Okay, Dwayne, one last thing about Matrix before we move on to systems, because I just like this is my bugaboo, which is I think we get this idea of I have to pitch. And I just think that there is nothing that kills something faster than a pitch. To your point, it's a conversation. So, what do you do when you're on someone's schedule for 15 or 20 minutes?
1: It depends on they are. So if they're an alum, it's sort of different than if they're a friend, which is sort of different if they're like a former faculty. It depends on what constituency type there are. But I try to answer three to five major questions. One, are they philanthropically motivated? You can figure that out by saying, what organizations have you given to in the past? Obviously, you know if they've given to your organization, but if they haven't, asking if they give to things like their church or the SPCA or any of the affinity organizations that people often give to, gives you an idea of their philanthropic motivations. The second question I try to ask is how their job is going. You don't say, how's your job going? It's not the best way to ask them. You can ask them what they do and kind of try to get a sense of where they are in their career and how much time they have. So I try to get a sense of, does this person have, are they going to give me their treasure? Or are they going to give me their time? Or are they going to give me their connections? So asking where they are in their career and trying to get a sense of that is a good way to see if they have enough time to volunteer where they are in their career can give you a sense of how much money they might have. And then the third question I try to ask is something about their family. So if somebody has small kids at home, often they're not in a position to give. If somebody has children in college, they're often not in a position to give If somebody has five houses. That's a good sign. If somebody has one house in a small town, and they work 60 hours a week, and they have two five-year-olds at home, chances are they're probably not going to be a major gift prospect right now. But that doesn't mean they're not a gift prospect. So those are really the three main questions I try to get to. And then again, depending on kind of their relationship to the organization, there could be a couple of other ones. But I try to talk less than 10% of the time. I just want to ask a question and listen, and then ask a follow-up question and listen. And if I'm saying more than responding to their questions, I feel like I'm doing a bad job. Sure, they ask often about, well, tell me about the program, like what's going on at UCI or how's the school doing? And sure, I'll answer that. I provide a really brief answer because what I really want to do is get them to talk about themselves so I can collect more information to see if the next conversation is going to be a cultivation for a major gift conversation or if the next conversation is going to be like an annual giving conversation or it's going to be an events conversation or whatever it
0: is. Dwayne, you and I are singing from the same playbook, which is, I think, the mistake I see people make, executive directors or development directors make, is that they talk too much. And it's like a monologue, not a conversation. Absolutely. It is a deal killer in a major gift. It's a deal killer on a date. Don't do it, people. (laughs) Stop talking about yourself. All right, let's talk about systems, because I'm going to get nerdy about this. So we know that organizations live and die by systems, especially when you're trying to scale from the small startup nonprofit to a more mature nonprofit. In your opinion, what are the basic systems that every development office should have as a bare minimum?
1: I think it's really just two things because we all have email. I mean, you can have a personal Gmail and those are free. I think you need some sort of Excel sheet, whether it's a Google Sheet or Excel, or if you like open office, whatever it is, And this is bare, bare bone. So you have $0 in your budget. So you need some sort of Excel sheet and you need a calendar and that's it. That's really all you need. You can make multiple calendars. So one master calendar gives you an idea of, okay, so I'm going to have an events calendar. I'm going to have a communications calendar. I'm going to have a separate, like individual conversation calendar, which is different than the communications calendar. I'm going to have possibly like a larger affinity calendar. So you're going to look at, say, events in your area, or you're going to look at other organizations that the person might be affiliated with and what they're doing because you don't want to overlap. And then you have your Excel sheet, which just has a ton of columns. And you track things like last time I talked to the person, next time I plan to talk to the person, what we talked about in like a notes sort of capacity, where they might give to other organizations what their sort of family housing situation is, because you want to remember things like their children's name, and you want to remember their partner's names, and you want to remember what city they live in and what job they have and things like that. And I always try to put links in the Excel sheet as well. So I'll put in something like a LinkedIn profile link. If I can find them on social media, put an Instagram link or a Facebook link. I don't necessarily friend them on those things, but it's good to just have that sort of data point because If you look at their Instagram and they were in Bali with their family for two weeks, I mean, that might say something to you as opposed to if they were hanging out on their farm in rural Montana, that's a different sort of thing. So really an Excel sheet row is a person and you just have a lot of columns where you're tracking them and a calendar. So you know that if you are in a small organization, what is the marketing person doing? Like You don't want to necessarily call them the day after they just got a giving day ask unless you want to call them about giving day. You want to maybe get a little sense of sort of their religious affiliation so you can wish them happy holidays, like personally, instead of saying Merry Christmas to somebody that doesn't celebrate Christmas. That's always awkward. The list goes on and on. But I think the Excel and the calendar are by far the two most important pieces of software that you need to have. And then obviously an email platform. If you're going to go sort of next level, having a proper CRM is really helpful because then it's out of Excel and it's in a database where you can connect all of the emails and things like that. And there's a bajillion CRMs out there. There's ones that are specifically for nonprofits. There's ones that are specifically for basically every type of organization you can get. And I wouldn't necessarily recommend one over the other. It just depends on your budget and your willingness to learn. And then in terms of calendaring software, I think that using Outlook or using Google is good, but you can also do add-ons to make sure that everything syncs together. I really like the tool Zapier or Zapier, depending, I'm not actually sure how you pronounce it, which is something that it's essentially an integration tool that connects everything together. So a lot of times you'll get a piece of software and realize that it doesn't work with this other piece of software that you have. And then you get really upset. And you're like, why did I spend $500 or $10,000 on this piece of software that doesn't talk to this other piece of software? Zapier pretty much makes everything talk to everything. So it's really nice when you can send an email to somebody that's logged in your CRM and that you can open your CRM and see your whole calendar inside your CRM. So you have like the contact the person that you're talking to the calendar the recent communications and then your notes all in one place it's the sort of basics on doing a major gifts program is just to be able to track and then having the discipline so we can talk about books here in a second but having the discipline to then go back and say i haven't talked to this person in six weeks i have to do something about that i haven't talked to this person in eight weeks Try to get a sense in that first conversation how the person wants to be communicated with. I always ask in my first 15-minute conversation, do you prefer text, call, or email? Every single time you make assumptions like, oh, somebody who's 86 definitely prefers a call. Not always. There's one 86-year-old prospect that I have right now that loves texting. He's just like a texting maniac. He just texts me all the time, random things. And that's fine. It's not a big deal. But I think sometimes we make assumptions about how people want to be communicated with, and that can be harmful. So asking, how do you want to be communicated with? And depending on the person, sometimes I'll ask, how often do you want to be communicated with? Because a lot of times, like I'm sure everybody on this call feels like they're overwhelmed with if you went to a university or you volunteered at a nonprofit, you get 742 emails a day, and you get called by six different people in the organization. We try to avoid that. Somebody says, I only want to be communicated with like once a quarter you know what? I put once a quarter. And if today is April 8th, I'm going to reach out to them on July 8th, like exactly a quarter away. So I really take things literally too. And if somebody's like, oh, I haven't heard from you in a whole quarter. Why is that? I say, oh, because you told me you only want to be talked to once a quarter. And then you can kind of play that little game and say, well, how often do you really want to be communicated with? Do you want to be invited to events more often than once a quarter and things like that? And I think just, again, listening is really, really important in that regard because people will give you so much information if you allow them to, and then you can use that information to really leverage your relationship with them.
0: Okay. I want to pause here because I want to talk about workflows for a second. So okay. one of the things that I talk about in my training, and actually I have two of my students here all, is we talk about methodologies and workflows. And I think so often, especially if we're the lone fundraiser, all of the steps live in our own heads, which then makes it hard to scale and delegate. So can you talk to us about how you've been able to document your workflows?
1: Yeah. So just like you have a a calendar of things for other people, you should have a calendar for yourself. So right before the call, Ray and I were talking about a book that's really helpful. And I actually have three books that I would recommend in sequence. So Atomic Habits by James Clear is a really good book to create discipline in yourself, to have a workflow that you stick to. And then Ultra Learning by Scott H. Young is a book that gives you a sense of how can I learn to be a better fundraiser. like What tools are out there? What books can I read? What information? Do I need to read a psychology book? Do I need to do a personality assessment? Do I need to understand myself better and learn? And then finally, Cal Newport's deep work is the sort of triumvirate in the sense of that book really targets, okay, instead of to-do lists, he really focuses on time blocks. And time blocks are really calendar-focused. So I have what I call an admin day, which I think a lot of physicians and other medical professionals use. We just have one day where you're just doing administrative work. And that's how you keep your workflows on track. And of course, meetings happen, emergencies happen. You can't maybe get your full... And I don't do an eight-hour day of admin day. It's more like three to four hours. But I turn my email offline, and I just open whatever I'm working on, and I just work on it in whatever chunk I can. So... I like the Pomodoro technique personally, it works for me. I can do like 35 minutes on, 10 minutes off. That's kind of my sweet spot and it will be different for everybody. But I think time blocking out in your own calendar, a disciplined way to navigate your workflow is really important. So like I said, with the follow-up quarterly, you should be, you, all of us, everyone should be looking at our prospect list every week, looking at the last date that we talked to the person and identifying what that next date is. And you'll get so much more information. Like maybe they came to an event out of nowhere that they were invited to or something like that. So I learned all of this through the dissertation process, actually. Like a lot of this workflow, deep work things was my own dissertation. Like I needed to get it done in a certain amount of time. I wasn't going to be an eight-year PhD student. So I needed to get it done quickly. So I installed a lot of these techniques. And time blocking, I think, is the biggest one that a lot of fundraisers don't do because you can time block calls out. So essentially experimentation, I found that for whatever reason, my constituency base really likes to be called on Tuesday afternoon. I don't know why I've tried like Friday morning. I've tried Tuesday morning. I have tried this. I tried that. They love Tuesday afternoon. So I call people on Tuesday afternoons. I basically only make calls during the week on Tuesday afternoons. And that allows me to go down a list, call notes, next call notes, next call notes, next. And then I go into my email okay, I need to follow up with this person. They asked for this collateral, or they did this, or I don't know this answer. I need to go ask a program person. But that's part of the note strategy. So Tuesday afternoon is like calls follow-up essentially. I've used Thursday mornings as my administrative day where I just go through my list and say, okay, where is everybody today? Takes an hour to get through all of them. Okay, so I talked to this person in February. Looks like they attended an event in March. They haven't given since December, end of year. We have our giving day coming up in a month. Do I need to talk to them now? Does it make sense to call them? Okay, what did they do last year? Oh, okay. I talked to them in March of last year. They gave a gift on giving day and an end of year gift. Chances are they're going to do that again. Can I increase their giving day gift? They gave the same on end of year, both years. So maybe they'll give the same, but you can ask for a little more. It's not going to hurt anything. They just say, no, I'm comfortable at the level that I'm currently giving. And it's that sort of discipline in the time block where you just go through everybody every week that allows you to not feel overwhelmed. Because I think a lot of times people shot it and they're like, okay, I need to make 10 calls this week. So I'm gonna call somebody now because I have 10 minutes. And then tomorrow I have 20 minutes. I'm gonna call somebody right now in my 20 minute time block. If your supervisors aren't allowing you to do your own time block, that's not good. And I'm sorry to hear that, but really advocate for yourself to get dedicated time to do the work. Because if you can't talk to somebody or if you're distracted or if you're in between meetings, you're not going to have an effective conversation. Like right now, a pro tip, hide yourself on Zoom. Hide yourself. You can click on the top three button thing at the top right. You can click hide self view. Magical. Why is it magical? I'm not looking at myself right now. I used to look at myself all the time because everybody does. We're like vain in that way. Right now, I'm just looking directly into the camera because I'm not up here looking at myself. And I think that's like a psychological mindset thing. And it's the same with calls. So if you only have 15 minutes to call somebody in between two things, you're not going to treat that in the same way that if you have a three-hour block to call seven people over that three hours to call somebody. It's just like a different mental process. And I think that's why using tools that you learn in Atomic Habits and Deep Work and really Pomodoro Technique and things like that can really enable you to work more effectively and efficiently and see better results. Not necessarily faster results, but better results.
0: Dwayne, that was great information. One thing that is coming through, so there's a question here about a particular number of touch points before asking for a gift. So I think that's an interesting question, but I think, and I'd be curious about your take on it, is the reason why major gift fundraising is so interesting is it's not formulaic. It's not like foundation fundraising or corporate fundraising where there's a set path forward, And so, which is why I love it, but I think also why it's challenging. And I feel like a lot of the training out there is like tries to be very formulaic, but the truth is you're dealing with people and people are unpredictable. So can you talk a little bit about any rules of thumb that you have with respect to touch points with a prospect before you ask for a gift? Knowing yeah. that it depends is also the It answer. depends
1: is definitely the answer. Yeah, it depends. I think it depends what type of gift you're asking for. If I'm asking for a lower like annual level gift, because there's an event like Giving Day, great example of sort of a lower annual, you're going to ask for 50 dollars $50,0. 000. I'll ask in the first conversation. I have no problem asking for a small dollar amount very quickly. Because at the very worst, that tells you where their mindset is in terms of giving in general to your organization. If they're not willing to give you $50 right now, It's going to take a really long time before they'll be willing to give you $25,000 later. And then the other thing is an estate gift. So an estate gift takes a really long time to ask for an estate gift because that's like your life, right? That's your legacy. That involves family, lawyers, plan giving people. That's like a very complicated transaction. And you want to make sure that they love your organization before you're asking them to put your organization in their will. But other than annual giving where you ask super early and estate giving where it takes a really long time, major gifts is really... If you can answer the questions, where do you give? Are you in a situation where you can give right now? And what do you think about my organization? The first question I ask is, how has your experience been with my organization? Always the very first question that I ask, because that'll unlock a lot of key features like, well, you know, I graduated 22 years ago and it was great. I was on alumni board then for a while. And then had kids and a family and I'm really looking for something to do now hear that all the time. That's like a super common path. So what does something to do now mean? Just ask, what do you mean by that? So if you can get a sense of how they feel about your organization, if they're in a position to give and do they give to other places, you can ask early. So There's a lot of, in the sort of literature, I'm a big literature person. I read as many peer-reviewed studies as I can on fundraising, which are very few and far between, though Indiana University publishes a lot very often because they have the Nonprofit Management School. Some people like to do test gifts and test asks. I'm not a huge fan of them personally. I found that if you do a test ask for $10,000 and they give you $10,000, you might have missed out on a lot more than that. That seems to be a common thing that if somebody's willing to give you like a pretty substantial amount of money really quickly, you should have waited because that means they have a lot more money. And then if you would have just cultivated them properly, you probably could have got more later. So I'm not a big test gifts person, but if I have all of the information that I need to determine whether they are philanthropically motivated, interested in my organization, and have the capacity right now, I'll ask as soon as I know that information. And then how you ask is a completely different story. So I like to ask without actually asking. I try to figure out what they do you ask without asking. So instead of saying, well, you give $10,000 to my organization, you say, what are you interested in? Scholarship's great. What kind of impact do you want to make? Well, I'd like to see at least one student funded forever. Oh, okay, great. This is how much that costs. Then I just asked for a major gift, but I didn't actually ask for a dollar amount. And then you can kind of see, oh, I didn't realize endowing a scholarship forever was so expensive. Like, what other options are there? Well, you know, we have this annual giving scholarship program where you can give over four years and it supports one student at this level. It's very similar to the endowment, but it's only a four-year commitment and it's at a much lower dollar amount. Oh, yeah, that's something that I think I can do. Again, didn't ask for a dollar amount. I just presented them with how much things cost to accomplish and got a sense of what they're interested in supporting, and then voila, they end up making a gift. So in terms of like outright asking for a specific dollar amount, 5% of the time or less. It comes off as like the sort of like guttural reaction that I, so what is that going towards? Like, how are you gonna use that? Like, how much is going towards this? Like, what's the overhead? Like, how much of a tax write off? You get a ton of questions, but if you start on the other direction, what kind of impact do you wanna make? Now all of a sudden it's like, We're not talking about money. We're talking about impact, but impact takes money. So it really puts somebody on a different playing field, so to speak. And I feel like people get way less defensive and like attacking your organization. Like, where's this money going? Like, oh, yeah, I would love to support whatever for this period of time. If you have your dollar amounts behind you and you can support it, then... Magic.
0: I think we need to have a longer conversation about this because I respectfully disagree with you because I agree that you need to tie it to impact, but I think there has to be a clean ask because I think a lot of the time, if you try to ask without asking, you don't actually ask. I've seen that happen a lot to you.
1: So in my scholarship example, I would say that to endow a full ride scholarship is approximately like a million dollars forever. So I say it costs a million dollars to endow one student forever. And you know, it's named and all of those things. If their first question is, how long can I pay? That's good. So that means they're interested in giving a million dollars. And you say like, oh, you can do it over 10 years and blah, blah, blah. And how can I do it? Well, you can give securities and all these other things. But if their immediate reaction is like, you can always tell in people's faces like, oh, that's way too much. Then you kind of go to the next thing. Oh, okay. So endowing a scholarship costs them as much and it takes this long. So if you're interested in scholarships... You can do an annual scholarship, then it's like $200,000 because, you know, say 50,000 over four years or whatever. So then I'm asking for $200,000. So how would you approach it?
0: I would have queued it up, understanding what it is they have been interested in in the past and I would probably, I'd like to couch it in two sentences in a question, which is like, Dwayne, you and I have spoken about how you want to support scholarships, how important your experience has been to you. Mm -hmm. What I'd like to ask you is, would you consider $200,000 to support the scholarship program for a year, whatever. I'm making up numbers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: So do you feel like how I approached it is not asking the same thing in a different way?
0: No, I think it is asking the same thing in a different way. I think the point that I would just underline here is like you need to get to an ask and you need to get to a dollar amount.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, you always have to present the dollar amount. You can't just like say, oh, it costs a lot of money to endow a scholarship for a really long time. Like I come with tangible and I like to do literally napkin uh, math for people. Not, I don't use a napkin. Oftentimes, I use the notebook that I carry around. I found it really, really effective to literally take a notebook, turn it sideways, and write down the number there. Say, okay, our endowment pays out 4.5% annually, period, end of story. Like That's just the math. And so if it costs $50,000 for tuition and room and board for them per year, and it pays out 4.5%, 50,000 divided by 4.5% is 1.1 million. It's a little less than 1.1 million. And doing the math with them in front of them, I found, is also pretty effective because it's like on paper in front of them. And it's not like this, you pull out a piece of paper and say like, oh, I was going to ask you for this the entire time because that feels like a little sneaky. But you're doing the same thing by writing it out in front of them. But then you can leave the leave behind after the document that you have that shows them what the ask is that shows like all of the actual information has like quotes and things like that. I ask, but I don't ask in the way of, would you be interested in supporting this for $200,000? That is something that I don't really do that, but I know a lot of people did.
0: So the other thing that I just want to underscore here, there's another question coming in, is I think I've seen that we wait too long to ask generally. And so if at a certain point they know why you're there, you know why you're there. And if you don't ask, then you just have a weird hobby where you want to hang out with them. And I've definitely been friend zoned. I've made that mistake.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of people got friend zoned during COVID because they were just giving COVID updates constantly. I was getting emails like weekly, like, oh, this thing happened and then, oh, this, and oh, we're here for you and this and that. And it's like, I thought you were just trying to ask me for a major gift, like what happened to that? So I completely agree. It's really easy to get. So my person that texts me all the time, Is an estate person and already committed, so I'm really like stewardivating him, which is a good word, not my word. So we're always like looking for the next gift. So I'm like trying to secure a smaller cash gift since it's already committed to the estate gift. But yeah, being friend zoned is really tough. And I think in your introduction, when you have that first call, explain exactly what your role is and exactly why you're having the conversation. I am director of development, which means I'm a major gift fundraising officer for this unit. And my job is to raise money for the school. And then there's no sort of like, and my job is also this, this, and that, which is true. But if you start with the, my job is this, you're being transparent with the person. But yeah, the friend zone thing is, Even if you do ask early, you can still get friend-zoned because they just say, Oh, I want to think about it. I'm going to go back to my partner and I have to blah, blah, blah. But I would love to still talk to you and come to your events and all those things. And it's a tough thing. And sometimes you just have to kind of be realistic with yourself of like, Okay, so is my portfolio overflowing? If you have 150 people and you have 10 friend zone people, probably should lose those friend zone people. And breaking up with people is really, really hard. It's really hard. You can't ghost them because that's not good for the longevity of the organization. But I think you can basically, again, go back to your job and rely on, like, my job is to raise money for the organization. And I know that we've had really good conversations over the last few months. And I really appreciate your past support. I'll continue to see you at events and things like that and just trail off. I don't have great advice on that.
0: Dwayne, you're just too damn charming, apparently.
2: (laughs) People just want to hang. All right.
0: I have a question coming in from Samantha. Samantha, do you want to ask?
2: Sure. Hi, Drain and everyone. Nice to meet you. Samantha, I work at a nonprofit in New York, Good Shepherd Services, Youth and Family Development. My question is related, but a little bit of a shift in still thinking about systematizing development. Um, and one of the things we're struggling with and would love your perspective on is how do you recommend a development team work with our fiscal department and our programs to help both parties understand the money that's coming in through our team? And kind of think about how it's going in and out in real time we have a little bit of a lag and we're kind of serving in that middle piece of it so do you have any thoughts on that or alternatively do you know how other organizations are kind of handling that
1: yeah we have a huge lag like even gift processing at our organization takes sometimes like three to five weeks so i don't even know if a gift comes in for weeks which makes stewardship really hard you want, like want to call them really fast I think on the program side it's really just really focusing on impact super narrowly how much does it cost to make the impact that you're trying to make period end of story and if they can't answer that question they need to figure out how to answer that question like that's really really important if it costs like charity water is a great example no harm about what they do like you can have personal opinions about what they do but in terms of how they present their message it's crystal clear it costs this much to build well. period end of story and that's sort of like, we're past the, like, I'm giving because I'm nice. We're kind of in the, I'm giving because I want to see an impact. And I want to know how much that impact costs, essentially. So your program people need to, if you have youth development, and one of the things, say, if it's homeless youth or something like that, how much does it cost to get a child off the street and for how long? Those types of like narrow things are very important to be able to articulate. And then you can present yourself to the external community in that way. And on the back end, the fiscal piece, it depends what the philosophy is. So some organizations are big on separate funds for everything. And other organizations are big on, I have one fund and I just restrict everything like in an Excel sheet, essentially in that direction. And it really just depends on how complicated you want the accounting to be. I think having multiple funds is a mistake because it's just harder to manage from an accounting perspective. But having restricted funds is easier. And in terms of lag time, if I understand your question, so say you get a gift of $10,000 that needs to be processed by your accounting people, your program people want to know when am I going to get access to the $10,000? Is that sort of your question?
2: Yeah, so on our side, we get funding from the government, funding from someone else, and the way that those funds are kind of restricted, right, or mm-hmm. the asks on them is a little bit different. And so how do we, as the middleman, kind of manage that between fiscal who's accounting for it and programs who are working within those, essentially?
1: Yeah. So the other thing about the restricted nature, a lot of really small organizations should really not get funds restricted because... I have a restricted fund right now that has a lot of money in it that I never spend because we're not doing it. Like We're just not doing what the money is intended. And we can't legally use money that's restricted in any way other than how it's restricted. So I think it's really, again, going back to the program people, figuring out how they want to make an impact, how much it costs, if there are like layers to their programming. So if part of it is and I'm making this up, homeless youth, and part of it is housing, part of it's food, part of it's this. Can you package things in a way where it's restricted in the sense that it's going to one thing, but it's unrestricted in the sense that if you really need extra food that month, you can put the money towards food. So you can kind of like do interesting accounting and say it's restricted to a larger like pod, essentially of programs instead of a narrow program. So then it's still restricted, but you can use it a little more liberally. Government grants are a lot harder because that's even it's even more restrictive because they're like you're literally writing a grant for a specific purpose. So I would say on the back end, you just need to really think strategically about how you're going to articulate externally about how the funds are restricted in a way that allows you to have a little more unrestricted access. And it's like a little bit of a dance.
0: And Samantha, I, I don't know if this is exactly your question, but I'm a huge proponent of engaging your program folks in the business side of running a nonprofit. So mm-hmm. you know, your monthly all hands or whatever, just do a financial review. This is how much we have out and asks. This is what's in the pipeline. This is how much is going out because I think Sometimes, and I don't want to bash program people, but I think program people forget that we're running a business and forget that they too are involved in the business of having to raise funds in order to fund programs. And so like being really transparent and realistic with them about where the money is and where it's going is always helpful.
1: And overhead. So like it or not, there's always overhead. I some of us say there's no overhead and we're like, oh yeah, there's 0% overhead for this gift, but you're, you're still paying for overhead in some way. Somebody has to pay for the operations. So I think that's the other thing to be really clear about, like what percentage of unrestricted funds is going to overhead. And it's hard sometimes to talk to a donor or prospective donor and say, well, you know, 18% of all of our unrestricted gifts go towards operations. So I don't want it to go operations. I want it to go directly to the service, whatever you're providing. But again, to Ray's point, like it's a business. It employs people. People get paid, usually underpaid in nonprofits, especially smaller ones. And... I think if a donor likes your organization enough and you can present a compelling enough case that it shouldn't be a problem, but it's really important for everybody in the organization to know how much it costs to run the organization. Because like to your point, if you're like building a curriculum and you're hiring a bunch of curriculum people and you're trying to administer a curriculum, it costs a lot of money to write a curriculum, teach a curriculum, do the assessment associated with the curriculum, collect all of the data, store it somewhere in a secure place. And there's just pie-in-the-sky things that happen often with a lot of programmatic folks. They're like, well, I'm doing this really cool thing, and it costs this much money. Like, why aren't we raising money for it? So, yeah, I completely agree with your point, Raya. All
0: right, so I'm going to lift up one other point that you said, and then I want to jump to Felix's question. But one thing that I really appreciate about the ways in which you've talked about raising money is essentially you are a vessel through which <clears throat> you are helping your donor to achieve their wildest dreams what kind of impact do they want to have and you you're merely the conduit to make that happen and i think that's so much more effective than i think some people who approach fundraising is like i'm on my knees asking for this gift or begging for the gift I'm like no i'm offering you an opportunity for your legacy or for your impact yep. to yeah. be realized in the world like jump on this opportunity
1: hmm and then I think the other thing that happens a lot of times in fundraising is like ego. So they're like, people are giving me money. So I'm the king or queen of money. When in reality, we are the middle, we're the middle person. It's hard. It's not an easy job at all. And it's not like there's formal training for it. you. can't go get a master's degree in fundraising, right? There's like certificates here and there. The program people are really the ones doing the work. And the finance people are the ones making sure that the place stays afloat. So if we can take the ego out of it, and that's why I say, like, get the other person to talk. Nobody cares about me. Like, I have to be charming and people have to like me, but that's it. That's like kind of the end of the line. It's much more powerful to get a prospective donor in front of a program person or in front of the leadership than it is for me to talk to them 12 times. Because the program person is going to express a level of commitment, a level of expertise, and a level of passion that I don't even think I could fake. And the leadership is the same way. They're going to talk about the vision in a way that you really can't talk about the vision. So I think leveraging your internal people, all program people should have at least one meeting, group meeting with a donor at some point in the near future for every organization, because otherwise they just don't get it.
0: All right, Felix, you have a great question. You want to ask?
1: So my question has to do with navigating mining people
0: versus genuinely cultivating them. Mm -hmm. Doing a lot of reading on this notion of authenticity. Two buddies, one's a stockbroker, one's a wealth manager. And I could tell when they're mining me for my
1: contacts or they're just hanging out and talking with me. And it turns Mm -hmm. me off and I tell them, stop mining me. So from the donor's perspective, how do you manage that? It's tough because people don't want to feel used at all. Yeah, so if I'm going to somebody who basically is like, yeah, I'm not really philanthropically motivated. I love your organization. I want to help in any way that I can. And my first question to them is, you can help me by introducing me to people that you think would give. That's not a really great way to approach that conversation. So I think for that type of person, getting them invested first. So have them come volunteer, have them attend an event, introduce them to a programmatic person, get them really interested in like whatever impact they want to see, even if it's what they want their friends to make they still want to see an impact if they're interested in the organization. So for example, there was one person I talked to a couple of weeks ago that is just not in a position to give right now. We'll probably give in the next like three to five years, but I want to get the person in now because I know based on the person's business that they're connected, like they are connected, like with a capital C, right? So I'm treating the person almost like they're an alum. They're not. And just, it's events. They're invited to small group meetings. Granted, they're all on Zoom right now with no expectation of participation, but to really make them feel invested in a way that is like a real investment. So I don't want it to be like a fake investment. Like I'm just token inviting them because I think that they could eventually help me out. And yeah, so I would say in my sort of portfolio, I have a good eight to 10 people. That are not gift prospects but they are gift connector prospects i treat them exactly the same as i treat everyone else and in terms of advice i think the big thing is whatever way you can get them invested so they offer the introductions without you asking them and i know that kind of goes back to my philosophy on asking for gifts in general is like you ask them for an introduction without actually asking them for an introduction which is something like oh yeah it seems like you're super interested in rna research and you're connected in this space like have you talked about this type of research with anybody else recently? Like, have you thought about this in any meaningful way? Like, what do you want to see happen next in this space? And then they're like, oh, yeah, well, I talked to blah, blah, blah. And he thinks this, this, and that. I'm like, oh, is that somebody that you think would be helpful for us to sit down, all three of us together and talk about this topic? And in that way, if you include them in the meeting too, that also helps to show that you're really not just like using them to get to their contacts. You're really saying like we're all together. It's the same team mentality, right? It's all the same team, we all have the same goals and we really want to show that if you want to see this type of research go forward and we need this type of funding and you're unable to get this type of funding yourself or give this type of funding yourself, what other things can we do to see the research go forward? And a lot of times people self-identify. They say like I do want to see this go forward. I think it's really important. I can't do it myself, but I want to help. That's an opening right there. Like, okay, so you want to help. Like, this is how you can help. Kind of back to what Rhea said with, well, would you like to give $200,000 to support this? Well, no, I can't give $200,000 to support this. Well, it costs $200,000 to move forward. So let's sit down together strategically and think about ways that we can raise $200,000 for this goal. And if you give people the authority to be a strategic partner oftentimes that leads to a lot of conversations that can result in introductions or ideas that you've never even thought of or like crowdfunding There's just a million things that could come out of those really sort of early conversations.
0: Yeah, I'd love to add on to that too, because I think when we put money at the center of the relationship, it's transactional. But when we put the work at the center, then it becomes relational and transformative. Mm -hmm comes about like how do we build this thing together because i think like we've all been networked and targeted for that gift and and you know when you're being used like we all know what that feels like it feels awful but we also know we've been invited in to build something together and that feels transformative and generous
1: yeah we are salespeople, but it's 30 percent of our job 35 percent of our job and we do sales like things like, time block two hours to call a bunch of people, that's a total sales thing. But at the end of the day, you don't have to talk to somebody like you're selling them something. Because if you're trying to sell them something, they have to want to buy something. And they're not buying anything. You don't get anything out of it. So instead of selling them a product, you want to, like Ray just said, bring them into the fold as a strategic partner and make them feel like they have agency in the process. And that's really when then you can sell them something after. So sales, it's the beginning and the end of the process. The middle is all of the relationships.
0: Yeah. It goes to my own personal theory of fundraising, which is it's really just that people want to be part of a community. They want to be part of something bigger than themselves. They want to leave something of value behind and they want to feel valued. And it's not more complicated than that. All right. Dwayne, this has been awesome. We didn't really talk a lot about systemizing, but I think we talked a lot about major gift fundraising, which is just as good. Certainly something I'm passionate about. Any last thoughts as we sign off here?
1: Yeah, I'd love to give a last thought about systematizing. I think more than software and Excel sheets and calendars, self-discipline and structure and habits is the way to advance major gifts, period, end of story. You have a certain number of touch points that you want to make with each person on a certain cadence that takes your discipline. Very rarely does somebody reach out to me and say, I haven't heard from you in three months. Would you like to call me? Nobody ever says that. And if they say that to you, wow, you're doing a great job. But nobody ever says that to me. So it's really just being incredibly disciplined about going through your lists at least once a week at the very minimum and getting down the list in a way that allows you to hit everybody you need to hit in the timing you need to. And then as a last sort of leaving point, don't overwhelm either. Sometimes we send what, six emails for giving day? We send like a month out, a week out, day of, afternoon, evening, like last chance. And if you gave (laughs) in the first email and you get five more emails, that sucks. Nobody wants to get five emails after they know that they already gave, but our drip systems like operate like that. And it's hard to not do that. So if you can create your internal structure to create an external structure that allows you to get people at a good cadence without overwhelming them, it's, it's a win-win for everybody.
0: Awesome. All right. So, Duane, I'm going to make sure that all of your info is in the show notes so people will know how to get in touch with you along with the great recommendations that you have put. Thanks so much. This has been awesome.
1: Thank you. Thank you, everybody.
0: All right, everyone. Take care.